What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Andre Cherney. He's the CEO of Aspiration. He's a got a huge list of stuff. We're just going to go into the list rather than recite them all. Really, for us, the test every day is, are we making our customers so happy, so amazed, so impressed, so wowed by what we're doing that they are choosing to pay us when they don't have to pay us? This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series, where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. On the last episode, we, Andre, we talked about being an intelligence officer in the Navy. I think one of the things I want to start with next is um, talk about going from an immigrant family to getting into Harvard. What was that process like? You know, I think it was um, really one of these defining moments of, of life. Uh, you know, for me, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, a place like Harvard was the, the other side of the moon, <laughs> from, from mm-hmm. anything I, I really uh, knew or, or understood or, or uh, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, and I re- remember so well, uh, I, I didn't expect to, to get into a, a place uh, like Harvard. You know, my, my grades were, were, were good, but they weren't straight A's by, by any means or anything like that. And I remember that day when I got the fat envelope uh, in, in the mail, I guess back then they still sent things in the mail. I don't know if they still do, but, <laughs> um, you know, saw that and uh, really it's, it's funny. The, uh, um, the first thing I could think of when that happened was that moment in, um, yeah, in, in the movie, uh, uh, Charlie and the chocolate factory, Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory, uh, when, when he says, I got a golden ticket mm-hmm. and it sings that. And that's, that's what it really felt like for me. It, it felt like, wow, I have a chance to, um, to do something different than, than maybe I ever thought before. And, and I, I think I, I, I tried to make the best of those years at, at a place like Harvard and, and, and learn all, all I could because I, I felt it was really a, just a, a huge opportunity for me. And, and, you know, I'd say the other really distinct memory from that moment was, um, uh, 
was the reaction of, uh, of my mother who was there at home with me when we got that envelope. And, you know, she was excited when, uh, we opened that envelope and, but I guess in retrospect, he was kind of holding something back and then opened the second envelope that had the financial aid package that came with it. Mm. And, uh, it, it, you know, it was clear that with, uh, you know, grants and, and federal uh, grants and federal student loans and subsidized student loans and all those things that, you know, it wasn't going to be necessarily easy, but it was going to be doable um, for for me to, to do that. And that's when she kind of broke down in, in, <laughs> in, tear, in tears of happiness yeah. uh, because, uh, you know, she, I guess her, her fear, of course, had been that I would, I would get into a place like that. But, um, you know, of course, uh, we would never be able to to afford that ourselves. And, and, you know, that made a real lasting impact on me as well. Sure. You know, um, I, I'm originally an art, I took the traditional route to finance as an art school dropout, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, since then I've, I've gone back and, you know, taken classes at Stanford and Harvard and these places. And, uh, you know, I did this week at Harvard in the dorms, uh, their private equity venture capital class. And, uh, it was, it was kind of life-changing for me actually. Um, it actually was a huge pivot point in my career. Um, some decisions that I made from, you know, I think in private equity, we spend a lot of time patting ourselves on the back about how smart we are. And um, there was some, I remember Josh Larry, uh, Larry teaching about some of the data that he got showing like private equity and VC on a whole loses 2%. So everything that Sequoia makes investing in Google, the rest of us lose all that plus 2%. So he's like, quit packing your backs, quit patting yourselves on the back so much just for being in the industry. Like if you're right. not a Sequoia, like you don't, you don't deserve some badge just for being in the industry. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Right. And, uh, these, these things about like, um, quit being so excited when you win a competitive bid. Like if you're willing to pay the price that nobody else was willing to pay, should you be that proud of yourself? <laughs> right. In an right. M&A right. transaction. And, and it's just like this, uh, Anyways, it was, it wasn't this self-congratulatory look at, let's sit around and talk about how great we are, which quite honestly, some finance conferences are a lot of like waxing eloquent about our untold wisdom. Uh, yeah. It was like, so straight shooter. Here's like, I don't know. It was just like, it was like liquid gold of like, here's what's really going on. Um, think harder. That's basically what the whole thing was like, quit patting yourselves on the back and think harder. And it was great for me. Uh, for you though, you got to spend way more time than me. Uh, your years there. What do you think is so special about that institution? Well, you know, I, I think um, you can get a great education in a lot of different places, and uh, you know, certainly there's good teachers and and, and so on. But uh, you know, as a you can get a get a library card and, and read all the great books. Uh, uh, in, in the world, you know, I think for me, it was really, uh, the, some of the people that were around there and, and classmates of mine and, and friendships uh, that I made. Um, and, and so I think that was one part of it. And I think the other was just, um, you know, it was a little bit like being cr at the crossroads of the world. I mean, you had such a, a great chance to have front row seats as you know, literally prime ministers and Kings and people like that came to address, uh, the student, uh, body and, and, to be able to see some of those people up close uh, was was a real treat. Sure. Well, um, you went from that, as I understand, writing for the Crimson to uh, writing, you know, to, your, to transition over the White House. 
uh, do I understand you're the you're the youngest White House screen uh, speech writer in American history? Is that true? Yeah, I guess that's what people who have looked at it have uh, uh, have told me. Just looking back at the records, <laughs> that's a riot. So, so this time, you know, as as a White House aide, what kind of things did you learn there that you've brought to Aspiration? Well, probably a huge amount. You know, I think it was a certainly a transformative. Uh, time in my life, and you know, I was I was 21 when I started working in the White House, and um, uh, you know, then moved on into more of a policy role, um, uh, working with Vice President Gore uh, in his 2000 campaign, and and kept on working in public policy for you know much of the next uh, 10 years uh, after when I when I started, uh, and I think those those set of experiences, uh, you know, taught me a lot of things. One is just you know when you're working in the White House and writing this writing speeches for the President of the United States and, and so on is is um, part of what I learned. Of course, is details matter. Uh, every word matters. Uh, you can't go off as um, as president and 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 say something that isn't well thought out. Uh, that isn't. Uh, backed up by facts that isn't uh, weighed and, and, and has some judicious thinking behind it because uh, you know, that moves markets and it sends uh, armies on the march potentially. Mm-hmm. And so all those things really matter. And, and I think that's, that was a good lesson for a 21-year-old, a 22-year-old uh, that I've you know, carried with me is um, sometimes those little details uh, are, are really important and uh, and, and you have to have really high standards. And, and I think that's certainly true in, in the Clinton White House where I worked or really in you know, just about every White House um, in, in, in recent memory is, is you've had uh, people there who, who took their job very seriously. Uh, and I think that's one. And, and two is just, you know, as I said, um, a lot of what I worked on there was, was issues around uh, financial access, uh, economic opportunity, uh, and, and so saw those things from a public policy standpoint. And, you know, we would often make the case there and, and in years after that, um, that, that financial institutions could uh, treat their customers well, didn't have to hit them with uh, um, unjust fees and, and still be able to do well. And we made the case that uh, the businesses didn't have to choose between uh, giving good benefits to their employees uh, and and treating the environment well and, and still being profitable and and I think that what we've been able to do at Aspiration is is take some of those um, ideas and and work on proving them out. Well, look at look at Blockbuster and Netflix, right? At one point, I, Blockbuster seventy percent of revenue was from late fees, mm-hmm. and when somebody but we, you just didn't have another option, right? Yeah. And when somebody yeah. like a Netflix shows up that is a very pro-customer, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Non-penalizing opportunity. Exactly. The, the masses flock to it, you know. Uh, so working at the White House, um, you know, it sounds so fancy. What, what was like one of the coolest, like what was one of the pinch me moments or what was one of the mo- most fun things from that experience for you? Yeah, I think it was, it was kind of every day. I mean... Um, if you ever uh, work in a place like the White House or, or uh, you know, Capitol Hill or something like that, and you don't walk in the front door and kind of catch your breath every day, uh, th- that's the time to quit. Uh, 
because you forget how lucky uh, you are. And so every day I, I walked in, uh, I would have uh, a sense of awe uh, about what I was doing and, and the immense kind of responsibility uh, that, that went with working in a place like that. Um, but, you know, I think it was really uh, the chance to uh, see public policy being made, being made up close and see really, really smart people um, grapple with really difficult challenges. And I, look, I think one of the things you see when you work in a place like that, and again, I think that's true in a Democratic administration, Republican, is uh, the longer you work in a place like that, the, the more you see that there, there really aren't, um, aren't easy answers that get to the point of the White House. You know, sometimes people say is, uh, if there's an easy decision to be made, it gets made a long time before it hits the desk <laughs> of the president. And, um, you know, when it when it hits the desk of, of the president or somebody like that, when it's being discussed, um, it, it means because there's there's some real trade-offs to be made. And, uh, and, and if you think things are black and white, if you think there's an easy answer, it probably means you haven't dug deep enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I think that's another good lesson to take as well. Well, thinking about this digging deep and, and making tough choices, uh, I understand you're a strategic counsel, you know, to Bank of America, Qualcomm, Intel. Um, I'm thinking about some some meetings I was hired to bring in, you know, went in and, and did some advising at Intel. Um, I'm interested uh, in your experience. I know for me, it, it was funny. I remember going, going like, what? <laughs> these guys are $5 billion revenue <laughs> company this year. What do they need me for? Yeah. And then getting in this room, it was like, for starters, why is there 25 people in this room? <laughs> I thought, yeah. you know, I, I thought we were coming to talk about <laughs> doesn't need this kind of, and just competing priorities and all sorts of issues. Um, what, what was your experience uh, providing counsel to those types of companies? Yeah, I, I think probably a little similar to what, to what you described where, um, you know, you, you take nothing away from companies of that size and, and it means they've, they've done something right. And, uh, They've done a lot of things right to get to that size. Uh, but for me, I, uh, I prefer working in a more entrepreneurial uh, kind of environment, uh, in more of a startup. <laughs> you know, as you, you talked a little about your experience, and you know, certainly any startup will have its um, ups and downs and challenges. But uh, you know, when but you at have, least there's a lot of motion, even if it's not yeah, exactly. even, even if it's not forward motion. Huh? There's at least there's at least stuff happening, and 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 you're grappling with things on a daily basis, and 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 feel like you're you're doing something. And if and and if the motion is going in the wrong direction, uh, then you have the ability to try to move it in the right direction, and and the and the actual chance to do so. Uh, I found being part of the. Um, these large organizations was there as, as a, as in a consultative kind of, kind of role, you know, pretty frustrating. And I felt a lot of people around me either were frustrated uh, at best or had just accepted that change was hard, if not impossible to do at worst. You know, it's funny. I feel like it's like some of my, besides my consulting work for actual government agencies, whether it's a treasury department or some of these military groups that I advise different leaders at, I feel like it's the closest thing to like government bureaucracy I've experienced. And what's funny is like, I, I love Intel. Like, um, I'm like super impressed with the level of innovation that's come out of there and, and the client that I worked with, the kind of things that they've been able to do, but man, the extra work to be able to get it approved, like no yeah. wonder they brought us to the meeting. It was half of it was what should we do? And the other half was how, you know, how do we get it? How do we get it done? Yeah. And 
honestly, they, they like have to work twice as hard as the rest of us to do something cool. Um, so it, to me, it's impressive how much cool stuff does come out of there. They were actually the first sponsor we ever had for this show. But um, anyways, y- unique, definitely unique perspective, kind of an eye opener for me of, man, they've got two battlefronts <laughs> to getting cool stuff done there. No, it's true. Yeah, you t- I mean, again, you take nothing away from, from those companies because uh, to, to build what they have and to keep on building and keep on, um, keep on innovating uh, is, is, you know, a truly remarkable and, and they have incredibly impressive people who work there. Do, does it make you think any different about as you grow your organization, your staff increases in size, just any of the, the policies or structure of how you want to do things to kind of keep that spirit alive? Hundred um, percent. You know, I think we uh, spoke in in the last episode about um, aspirations, pay what is fair, uh, business model, and uh, you know, just as a reminder, you know, what really means that uh, for all of our aspiration products, our checking account, and our investment products, and, and so on, we we trust the customer to decide what to pay us. If the customer wants to pay us zero, they can pay us zero. Uh, we really see it as up to us to earn that fee, and and. Um, well over 90% of our uh, investment clients and others are, are, are choosing to pay us. And I think part of that is certainly about building that customer relationship, but it's also about um, our business culture, especially as we scale. Because one of the things I think you see in large organizations and or growing organizations is the culture starts to drift and the sense of mission and purpose that maybe those companies started with um, maybe starts atrophying. Um, you know, I, I, you look at a company like Bank of America, and I say this not to, to pick on Bank of America by any means because there's you know, amazing people who work there and, and it's a um, you know, truly impressive financial institution in so many ways. But you know, it started out as the Bank of Italy, right? Uh, serving um, immigrant uh, dock hands in San Francisco uh, at a time that nobody would, um, would serve them. And it, it grew and grew. Um, and it became what it is today through mergers and, and otherwise. But I, I think maybe has lost some of that same sense of mission. Our pay what is fair model in some ways keeps us honest because it really means that for us as a company at Aspiration, we're not going to grow and, and our profit's not going to come from uh, being able to uh, or, or, or having the um, kind of setup where we can lay on fees on people or, or, or do some of these other things that you see big institutions do really for us, the test every day is, are we making our customers so happy, so amazed, so impressed, so wowed by what we're doing that they are choosing to pay us when they don't have to pay us. Um, and that for an organization really focuses our attention, whether it's our customer engagement team, whether it's our engineers, whether it's our, people who are working in product or in investments or, or any other part of the organization, it, it makes it clear what we're about. And and similarly, our charitable commitment, when we are giving 10% of our revenue to charity, such a big commitment, uh, you know, probably making us the most, financi- most charitable financial firm in America, uh, that's such a large-scale commitment that it forces the organization at whatever size we're going to be to look at what we're doing with very different eyes than maybe another uh, financial institution of that same size. Um, by the way, so uh, <laughs> taking, taking a slight tangent marketing wise, 
as we're talking here, I'm, I'm searching your website, trying to sign up for a bank account. And, uh, tell me about this email gating strategy with the, uh, jump to the front of the line by sharing it. That's a genius move to get people to take the next step of letting their friends know they're considering it. Who, who came up with that idea? You know, I think we came up with it originally as a, as a team. And it's, it's interesting. We, um, it was originally about, um, kind of, you know, as you said, maybe <laughs> e- email gating. I'm not sure we use that that term, but it was really when we were first starting, we um, had gotten a lot of interest and frankly didn't want to be flooded on day one uh, with thousands of people opening their accounts. We just were so small a team that we weren't going to be able to handle it. But what we found over time over the past year and a half is it really makes a difference to customers because of some of the information that uh, we send customers ahead of time. And, and so the way it works is a, a customer goes to Aspiration, they sign up on what we call their invitation list. Um, they can move up that list by, by sharing with their friends and telling others about us and they can move to the front of the line. But even if they don't, it's, it's really just a, you know, a matter of a few days or maybe a week until they get their invitation. Uh, so it's not a long wait, but some of those emails that they get ahead of time about uh, our financial products and how they work and, uh, and how Aspiration works as a company uh, have turned out to be really important of uh, helping people understand um, how this entire process works. You know, we see for us more than three quarters of our customers have no investment products that they own before they come to Aspiration. Some because they, they haven't had the assets to do so previously, but others because they're, you know, maybe sitting with all of their assets in cash because they haven't liked anybody or haven't trusted anybody or just felt intimidated. And so really building that relationship before they get their uh, invitation email, as we call it, uh, has proven to be really uh, something vital to um, to building that um, that sense of trust and 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 making people understand how that process is going to work when they first start. Well, I've got another show. If you haven't been on Bronson Taylor's show, uh, GrowthHacker.tv, <laughs> you definitely qualify. That this is exactly what I feel like I would learn watching one of his episodes. So you should you should get on there too. But um, changing gears for a second, you know, we we always like to ask our guests. Um, what kind of advice they would have for us at child rescue and, you know, having spent time as a prosecutor, obviously you're working on financial fraud, not on, on, you know, catching predators who are harming kids. But as you think about us, you know, these last seven years, we've been trying to go about child sex trafficking, which um, unfortunately happened to my mother-in-law, um, not far from you guys in Marina del Rey when, when she was a 12 year old that happened to her in Santa Monica. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so we just, you know, feel strongly kids shouldn't have to grow up like that. And, and we're trying to do our part. Uh, what advice would you have um, based on any of your background or, or specifically prosecutor background to, to try and get more people involved in that issue? Well, uh, first of all, you know, thank you for, for doing that. And thank you for, uh, you know, committing yourself to, uh, to such an incredibly worthy cause and, and, you know, one that oftentimes people don't want to talk about and feel uncomfortable uh, talking about, but th- that means a lot of times that issue gets swept under the rug and there's a lot of people who are really paying the price for it. Um, you know, I, I was a, a, a financial fraud uh, prosecutor, but um, really what that meant uh, working in a place like, like Arizona was um, dealing with a lot of oftentimes criminal enterprises and, and people who were trafficking uh, inhumans uh, across the border uh, and, and otherwise, and unfortunately saw um, this issue up close uh, mm. a number of times. And, and um, uh, you know, of course, some, some just 
terrible, gut-wrenching uh, stories that, and, and cases that I was involved with. Um, and so I just think it is so important that uh, organizations like uh, yours that are working on this issue continue to uh, shine a spotlight on it because um, I really think that this is an issue where uh, sunlight and public knowledge and public awareness play such an enormous role in being able to spot the warning signs, um, in being able to understand when something like this is perhaps happening under your nose or in your community or in, in a store that you're in or, or um, being able to spot uh, those telltale signs is just of critical, critical value. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, another thing, every time we have an author on the show, I like to ask them, well, for starters, tell us about uh, like your books, like The Next Deal. But um, also, a- after you're done that, will you tell us what your writing regime was like? Are you a get up at 5 a.m. and write every morning kind of guy? Or, or what was your schedule like? Uh, yeah, I, I've, uh, uh, I've gotten to write two books. Um, uh, one was uh, called The Next Deal, as, as you mentioned. And it was... Uh, really a book about uh, business and government and community life and how it's changed over the course of American history, uh, starting from the uh, agricultural uh, time of the early Republic through the industrial age and uh, and the turn of the last century and um, uh, the great depression in that time on up to the information age and what business looked like uh, in, in the new economy information age, what government was going to look like, what our community institutions were going to look like. And, uh, uh, it was something I wrote, I was pretty young. I was uh, 23 when I started writing it and, and it came out when I was, when I was 25. Uh, and I'm, I'm you know, pleased to say a lot of what I predicted in, in that book. Uh, this was of course written pre, pre Facebook, pre iPhone, pre uh, a lot of the things that we, uh, take for granted today. But uh, I think a lot of that has come has come to pass and then wrote another book that's called The Candy Bombers uh, that was um, about um, the end of World War II, the beginning of um, the Cold War and really about uh, the Berlin airlift and, and the Berlin blockade and uh, and everything that was happening there from what was happening with the generals and, and President Truman and, and that time period to really the people like um, the, the heart of the book, a, a character named uh, – Gail Halverson, uh, Hal Halverson, who was the candy bomber, who was a, uh, a pilot, um, young pilot from, uh, from Utah, who uh, took it on himself to drop candy to the children of Berlin uh, at this very, very critical time and really transformed their hearts, transformed the nature of uh, that occupation of Germany. Uh, and I, I make the case in the book that... Uh, Really, if we're not for that act of kindness, uh, our history as a planet might be very different. And uh, the history of the 20th, 20th century might have been very different. And it was really about the individual acts that each of us can take that really can send uh, ripples uh, through history and, and make uh, our kindness uh, and, and, our, um, and our view of the world and, and how we treat others something that gets amplified over and over again. Yeah. So those were those two books and, and my, my writing regime, um, uh, you know, especially for the second book, I was at the time I was working as a prosecutor. Uh, so working full time and, uh, would, uh, would work a full day and then come home, uh, eat dinner with, uh, uh, with my wife. Uh, we were newly married at the time and, uh, 
then basically work from, you know, uh, seven o'clock or so till, till 2 a.m. and then, uh, work just about all day long on Saturday and Sunday. I, I, I say that these books were written pre-kids and uh, <laughs> something that, uh, that wouldn't quite work out, uh, uh anymore. Um, well, I know that the president of the United States is a big deal and all, but isn't it the candy bombers that got you on the Colbert Report? <laughs> uh, my, my, my claim to fame, exactly. And so got, uh, got a chance to uh, tell that story on, on the Colbert Report. And, uh, um, That's got to uh, be a riot. What was that like? It was an amazing, uh, it was an amazing time. I'd get to, you know, of course, uh, spend time with uh, Stephen Colbert and, and, uh, and his team and and I have to say, especially back when the Colbert Report was on uh, Comedy Central, uh, you know, I'd go places and uh, get introduced maybe on, on a college campus and they would talk about being a speechwriter in the White House and, uh, and doing all these other things. And nothing that I had done uh, was nearly as interesting by, by a long <laughs> shot as, as having Bill on the Colbert Report. So it's, uh, it is still my kind of thing. That's awesome. So uh, for the rest of us who haven't done that um, and now won't get the chance, uh, what was something you didn't expect or what was something extra fun about that experience? You know, it was fun because uh, I guess the episode we uh, taped was right when they were about to go on hiatus. Uh, I think it was maybe their summer hiatus or something like that. So they were you know, basically about to go on their equivalent of summer vacation. And so after the show, it was really their last show that they had taped together for, for a few months. They all went out to a bar together, including Stephen Colbert. And, and you know, to see him there with his, you know, his hair messed up uh, without kind of being slicked back in the way he was night and day from the character that he was playing um, on on TV. I think now that he's on CBS, we're kind of more used to seeing him out of character but back then you never saw him out of character yeah. and just uh, you know hang out with him uh uh in a bar uh with him and his team uh having a good time was uh, was a pretty special treat that's a riot well um listen you have a real passion for doing what's right for other people you know taking the individual choices ourselves and, and doing what we can but but you also have this capitalist let's grow a business and make a profit side of you um i, I love seeing that we don't have to choose either or, um, but, but entrepreneurship is, is difficult. And, you know, we're not typically painting by numbers. We're kind of building the airplane in flight. Um, any kind of closing advice you'd have here for, for innovators or entrepreneurs or anybody who feels like, man, the hurdles are just too big. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't born with the tools. How am I supposed to do this all myself? It seems like so much to overcome. Well, I, I, I don't pretend to uh, have all the answers. Uh, you know, I think we've been fortunate in the kind of growth that we've seen in Aspiration, the kind of support uh, that we've seen from, from customers and investors and otherwise. But, um, you know, it's a struggle. And um, I, I think the best thing I can say is, you know, I've had a chance to um, spend some time over the years with uh, some truly amazing on- entrepreneurs, people who have built companies that we all know, um, you know, uh, the founder of, of Costco and of Honest Tea and uh, Whole Foods and, and, and a whole host of other uh, great companies. And, you know, to a person, when you talk to them about those early years, uh, you'll hear stories that'll just blow your mind about uh, all of the troubles that they faced, all of the times uh, it seemed like it was just too hard and too much of a pain and wasn't worth it and wasn't going to work and uh, was destined for failure. And 
you know, they kept on going and they kept on pushing ahead. And it, of course, that doesn't mean that everybody who, who perseveres is going to is going to find success. But if you don't persevere, you'll never find success. And so that's really the only uh, advice I can get I can give is uh, the advice I give myself. You, you wake up every day and you try to do as much good you, as you can that day to try to make as much progress uh, and you never give up. That's great. Well, thanks for making so much time for us today. Thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, and thanks for uh, talking to so many great folks and, and for what you're doing to, uh, uh, to help some of the most vulnerable in our society. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Now is the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.